Every year, TCOM selects an individual whose work exemplifies the ever-evolving mission to create and improve helping systems. And that person is honored with the TCOM Champions Award, presented during TCOM's annual conference. I'm Timothy Fall, creative producer for the University of Kentucky's Center for Innovation and Population Health, the IF Center. Along with IF Center director and TCOM's original developer, Dr. John Lyons, and producer Lauren Mergen, I'm making the conversational rounds of past winners of the TCOM Champions Award, learning how the TCOM tools have transformed the way these champions help others. You're listening to Tales from the Collaborative. My call for this episode went out to the San Francisco Bay Area, to San Dimas, California, where I reached Nate Israel, founder of Union Point Group, where he works in the development of collaborative system management structures and a lot of other interesting processes that he shared with me. I asked Nate where he got his start as a leader in transforming helping systems. Gosh, I I took kind of like a meandering path into having anything to do with the cans. I am by training a clinical psychologist, some licensed psychologist. Um, I was always more interested in policy and trying to figure out how systems work or don't work uh, for kids and families. And so um, I I started out in academia, um, actually. Um, and I was trying to figure out in academia how do our good intentions in terms of how we work with kids and families actually translate into something useful for them. And that has been kind of the guiding star of um, what seems meaningful to me um, is to try and listen more deeply to peer, people experiencing a system and to hear their stories and suggestions so we could find out from them what's actually useful and helpful. Also, well, at what point did you have some sort of collision course with TCOM and how did, how did that get to be part of what you're, what you're involved Sure. Um, so I started out at the University of South Florida, and at the time, the University of South Florida had a SAMHSA research and training grant. They had it for about 20 years, and they were trying to figure out what makes effective, sustainable systems of care. So how we get everybody in child-serving sectors um, to work together to help kids. So we looked around the nation for best practices for people who are actually able to sustain systems of care um, to build them before federal funding came and then sustain them after federal funding went away. So how do we keep getting people centered on kids and families? Um, and in that work, we started hearing about the use of the cans. Um, so we talked to folks who were at Choices um, in Indianapolis, and they were real champions of using the cans um, in their wraparound and other programs. And then we just started it was just starting to percolate um, through systems at that point in time. That's like 2005 to 2007, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the distant past. Uh, I was interested in it um, because it had a strength section. Um, and the other tool that people were using for functional assessment, the CAFIS, um, really didn't have a, a way to represent um, the resources and interests and things that people wanted to develop. Um, and instead it was about, um, how they weren't doing well in the places that we wanted them to do well, which I mean, to me is important to assess, but it's also, it doesn't get us anywhere. Um, just to say that people aren't doing well in a particular area. Um, we got to figure out what they care about, what they want, um, 
and then how we can resource them to get there. So the cans seemed in, in some ways to, um, to be going down that path. Um, so that got me interested in it. So it sounds like then it changed the way that you were working in one way or the other. Can you recall like how you started changing something you did once you were exposed to the cans, exposed to the, the TCOM tools? Yeah, sure, sure. I, I mean, at that point, we were trying to figure out um, in other systems and systems of care, um, what are the things that we would recommend to them uh, to help the system get better, right? And help them help it really like um, listen to and work with families better. We worked in the background on the Rosie D settlement, which was a Ma- Massachusetts class action settlement, um, to try and reorient that state system um, to helping kids and families. And so one of the things we recommend was that they use the cans, but that they take the data that they were getting from the cans and actually use that to figure out where they could be improving the system. So, you know, at that point, um, when I was doing it, it was still a kind of an abstract idea. Um, you know, it's just a, a tool that people were using that could be used mm-hmm. both clinically and for um, performance improvement. But it wasn't like there wasn't something that um, really had its hook um, into me. But after that, I, I started to get a little bit restless um, and everything. <laughs> Because um, it didn't feel like we were answering problems um, with a level of detail that could actually be useful to people. Um, instead, we were you know we were answering them in a way that was a bit more abstract um, than yeah. people needed. Um, and so I I took a job at the Department of Public Health in San Francisco um, within their Children's Behavioral Services, um, and I was working in EBP implementation, um, which was really um, interesting, good, useful work. Um, but they pretty quickly had a problem um, the system did that they needed a solution for. And they had the overuse of residential services um, for youth who were involved in both mental health and child welfare systems. And they're trying to figure out, well, how would you assess the scope of that overuse or suggest more appropriate mm-hmm. types of care? Mm-hmm. Um, how might we use a, a common language or set of criteria for identifying when a youth needs um a home to go to or a out of home care that includes intensive treatment services. And those mm-hmm. are really different things. Um, and saying just because we can't, we don't have appropriate foster parents for a child doesn't mean that they should be put in a residential treatment setting. Um, that, those are not the same problems that you're solving for, right? So really trying to figure out when kids would benefit from that intensive treatment. Uh, so we worked um, really intensively with this program called Foster Care Mental Health, um, which was a, sat at the conjunction of those two systems um, and implemented the CANs um, and a set of assessors who would assess those kids coming into that system um, to really start to say, well, who actually needs intensive treatment um, outside of their home? Mm. Uh, and it was really helpful as a system to be able to do that. And we also dramatically reduced the wait time that kids had for assessments getting into the system. We then tracked how quickly they got to the services um, that they needed. And so we're really using it to say, hey, how are we accountable to these kids and families, right, around getting them, not only identifying what they need, but actually getting them um, that care and those services. So that was the first time that um, it became a practical tool um, in my experience. Cool. Well, so is that what you were doing 
when you were given the the TCOM Champions Award, what were you what were you cited for? Who were you working with? And what was the project that they said, "Hey, Nate, that we're we're honoring you because right. you you're doing this." Oh man, it's still a mystery to me. Um, <laughs> but what what I I think maybe what happened after that um, was something that was that was important, um, and and that was um, the project was successful in a small scale. And then the decision was made to take it across the entire system. So to be able to say um, any children's behavioral health provider um, who we're using, who we're contracting with in, in any meaningful sense um, needs to use the cans across all the um, providers in San Francisco. So that was, um, um, that was a very interesting scaling challenge. Um, and, it really was kind of day in, day out work for the next um, four or five years to try and figure out how we go from removing this idea that we just put another piece of paper in front of families and instead um, thinking about implementation in a planful way and really listening to the people involved so that we could give them meaningful practice suggestions um, around how to turn this into something that actually is an asset um, for yeah, kids yeah. and families. And so that was that was the work that became the um, I think kind of the the calling card of what we were doing. And there was if I could be so bold, um, I'd identify three lessons that we learned from that um, because it was um, you know that what what's offered many times um, is reliability training on the cans, which is really important. And that's only the very tip of the iceberg um, when, when it comes to implementation. Um, so that's the very smallest step you can take towards implementing the cans. Um, the three lessons that we learned were integrate the cans into another required document. So like the comprehensive diagnostic or psychosocial assessment, because that shows people how the cans is a way to take the work they're already doing and then summarize that work in terms of the action level that kids and families need. Yeah. Right? Um, if you don't do that, then people just see this as another piece of work that they're being given. And it's really hard to think, how does this relate to anything else I do? It's really easy to mm -hmm. reject um, as, yeah. as not being terribly useful. So, so integrate it. Um, the second... Um, is in, in your implementation, be publicly accountable and transparent about how you problem solve the implementation of the CANs. So we were doing um, four regularly scheduled calls a month with providers. We did four because there were four different times that they said were convenient for them. <laughs> um, and so that's what we would do. And then we'd have monthly calls that they were required by contract um, to attend. And we would turn those into robust problem solving sessions where any problem that somebody noted, we would write down, um, we would indicate who said it, we would say the date that they said it, and then we would be accountable for finding a solution around it. Um, mm. And we would, we would review that document every single call we had. So if there was a problem that somebody brought up in the previous call and we hadn't solved it, that's to our shame. we got to figure that out, right? Uh, okay. um, yeah. And, and part of the beauty of that is that, you know, a lot of times think about clinically, you might create a treatment plan, right? And then expect families to follow through on things, right? Well, if, if we're going to expect that of families, we better be modeling that behavior at every level of the system ourselves, right? Yeah. 
So how are we identifying like, okay, this is a problem. Okay, what are the resources to solve this? And okay, how am I going to be accountable to you um, in showing you that I've, that I've actually taken meaningful action to get it done? So really being transparent about that, um, keeping the running log of that. But the other thing that we found as the longer we went it in, into this process, the deeper we went into it, the more we found that the problems we were surfacing, other providers had a solution to. So somebody else had already run into this problem. Most of the time, they'd already solved it. So they already mm. had a practice solution for the problem that somebody else on the line came up with, right? And so over time, the calls started to turn into something where you have um, more of a group problem-solving process mm. um, as opposed to simply a problem identification process, right? Um, we can yeah. really get it saying, hey, this isn't working. Um, but to listen to each other and give each other the, the opportunity to provide those solutions was really the most powerful part of it. Um, being transparent in that way also, I think, could help motivate some administrators to make decisions that need to be made. Yeah. I was really lucky to be um, in a very supportive um, environment um, politically to do this. I had a wonderful set of directors who I worked with who really um, had continued commitment um, to doing this and doing it right. And that made an absolutely huge difference. The, the third thing that we did um, was to turn questions about how you would do this into solutions provided by youth and families. So if somebody said, man, you know, the CANS is not an engagement tool. The CANS is something that's off-putting to families. So what we started to do after hearing those things enough times, and, you know, I'm not going to say that we were quick to any of this, um, but was to sit down and to have working groups with families and then with youth. And we ran um, probably 15 or 20 of these while I was there um, with targeted groups of, of, of families because we had really diverse families um, that we were working with. And to say, hey, guess what? Um, you know, we're required to ask these questions. What order should we ask these in? What's the way that we should ask this so that it's not offensive and it's actually useful to you? What should we do with this information? Um, are there things that we do right away or things that we wait to do? Like some of the answers were really predictable and some mm -hmm. of them were entirely surprising. Um, some of them were the same. They're really consistent ag across um, culturally and linguistically different um, groups of families. And some of them were the same for everyone. Um, like everybody starts with the idea that um, you could say these are the types of questions that we're going to ask about um, in the cans. Um, what are you most comfortable starting with? Where should we start? Mm -hmm. Give people the choice where they want to start um, on the assessment, right? Do they want to start with strengths? Do they want to start with needs? Do they, what's on their mind? Um, yeah. So that's what helped you scale it from your, um, the 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 first agency you said you you that was your your challenge right was to scale it up big but are you telling me take it statewide or what what how yeah, far did you go from that's that? an interesting question so san francisco is okay. a city and a county um and that's what i was working for um not long after that um we held two tcom conferences in san francisco um and there was um a fair amount of interest across counties uh, mostly in northern california although some in central um that were interested in 
um, in adopting the tool. Um, and so it was probably about a, um, a 10 year process from when we started adopting it in the county to when the state decided it was mandated. Um, and California is like its own nation, um, just yeah. in terms of size and scope and geography and culture, um, right? So I actually, in some ways, I'm thankful that, it, you know, they had that time for it to roll out like that. Um, I think that different counties to different degrees, um, you know, learn from what we had done. Um, and we're really active and engaged in, in doing some collaborative work and thinking about um, how that might happen. You still have counties today that, um, you know, where it, it might still be seen as a, um, as a piece of paper that's not yet integrated. Well, so Nate, is this, is this still your pursuit today right now? Like, what are you, what are you working on right now? What are your challenges right now in the TCOM space? What, sure. What's your, what's the day to day? A lot of the work that I do now is working with systems um, to identify how their services are consistent or inconsistent with the outcomes that they're trying to achieve. So, um, you know, if you if you say that we want to help um, kids who have experienced PTSD um, to routinely be successful at home, at school, and in the community, um, well, what are the things that we need to do to make sure that that happens, right? Well, we need to understand um, what our practices are, not just in terms of um, how they might be consistent with best practice or how they might be consistent with an evidence-based practice. Those things are central, um, I think, to our effectiveness and, and really have a, a soft spot in, in my heart because I worked in EVP implementation to start with. Um, but also to say, like, well, how is it that a person even accesses the service? What's that experience like for families? Mm -hmm. How do you do treatment planning in that service? What's that experience like for families? They, what does choice look like um, when you think you have an intervention that somebody needs and, um, and that's your assumption, right? And then they have their own assumptions about what they need to achieve and how they need to navigate the world. Um, so what does choice mean in that, uh, in that moment? Right. And then as you as you leave care, um, what are the things that, that families need and, and youth need what they say they need um, and what are we actually providing them? And so I, I tend to work with um, state systems and large providers um, around closing that gap um, between what we think might work well and, and um, what, what families really need. Yeah. Is there something that you can you a, a, a place that you imagine yourself taking your work into the future? Is some sort of like change that you are excited about that you a place that you want to go? You know, I think what's interesting is that um, in behavioral health systems that that I've encountered, and this has been true for all of them actually that I've encountered, um, we have two different ways of operating. We have this way of operating that people put down in manuals and policy and procedure. Um, and that's like the explicit way that we operate, right? And then we have what actually happens. Those are two different worlds, right? Um, yeah. And so yeah. really, I think that um, that doesn't do a, a service necessarily to families and youth. Because when we explain the system, we explain it using those policy and procedure documents, right? But then what they experience is the way people actually act, right? It's their norms and their habits and the 
um, the, the kind of customary way of interacting with people. So really, I think it would be wonderful to be um, clearer um, about how those two sets of rules come together. <laughs> so how is it really that you have a system where you can say, yes, this is the way the system is designed, right? But also to be able to say, and, and this is how we make it engaging for you. Right? This is how we make sure it's about your needs and your strengths. Um, and this is how we're not thinking simply in terms of the kind of categorical boxes of what the system requires us to do as our way of serving you, but instead saying that's the starting point of how mm -hmm. we can help. And where we really want to go is to how can we develop the things that you care about the most so that you can be successful at home, in school, in your community, right? And to, to really make it about people again. And so that's really the, the work that I do. So it's everything from mapping systems um, to helping I identify funding and practice um, opportunities um, to better align um, with what kids and families really care about. Those policy interests that you said have always fascinated you, right? For sure, for sure. You know, our, our, our question is how this works for one person and then how this works for the entire population, right? And to, to make it work at both scales. Um, okay, so after you after you shut off the computer and turn off the lights at the end of the day, and it's a nice sunny weekend, Saturday or something. What's your what what do you what what are your interests? What do you what do you like? Where do you like to be when you're away from your work? I, well, I think that you know the thing that's very most important to me is my family. Right, the, the thing that that I care about are our kids and families, and I have a. Um, we have an extremely rowdy dog um, who likes to chase and be chased. And, and then I have a, um, a three-year-old who is trying to give that dog a run for his money. Um, and so it is, it is um, I like to say, a beautiful orchestra of chaos. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that, that is where I operate with my wonderful wife, beautiful family. And that's really um, my hope for everybody, right, <laughs> is that they can experience that orchestrated chaos. The, the chase or the chase or be chased mentality. Absolutely. Living, and if they'd like living. to give us a rest from that for a couple of hours, <laughs> I'm also willing to take them up on that. So, yes. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's 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 the important stuff right there. It really is. <laughs> Nate, thank you for your conversation. And thank you for sharing like what's interesting to you and what has dr drawn you through your career. And, and like I said, I thank you for sharing your um, your perspective on it all. TCOM Champions Award winner Nate Israel is the founder of Union Point Group, where he works to transform helping systems. Tales from the Collaborative is made possible in part by the Prade Foundation, a nonprofit organization committed to improving the well-being of all through the use of personalized, timely interventions and provider of online training in the TCOM tools. TCOM is Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management, a comprehensive framework for improving the effectiveness of helping systems through person-centered care. Online at pradefoundation.org and at tcomconversations.org and by 
the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky. Online at iph.uky.edu.